Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, the podcast where we survey the entire corporate credit landscape from the lofty heights of a windowless recording studio in Lower Manhattan. I'm your host, Will Cager-Smith, and today I'm joined once again by one of my favorite podcast partners, James Wallach. Hey, Will, good to be with you. Good to have you. So today I want to talk about a topic that gets talked about a lot, but um, we're going to talk about it in, in a slightly different context. Um, I kind of think of it as the the white whale of Covenant analysts. Basically, ever since the J. Crew transaction last decade now, um, people are kind of fixated on finding what's going to be the next one. Yeah, everybody's looking for the next J. Crew, aren't they? People are obsessed, it seems, with uh, Covenant loopholes. Yeah, so I mean, that's maybe a good place to start. Actually, can you can you kind of explain why everyone's so obsessed with the next J. Crew? Well, I think we use J. Crew. Um, sort of as a, as a proxy for any liability management exercise. But let's face it, people just like saying J-screwed. Sounds better than PetSmarted mm-hmm. or Neiman Marcus or Clarezed. Uh, J-crew, uh, I'm sure are, some of our listeners are aware of the transaction, but it was particularly tough for existing lenders because for a company like J-crew, as I understand it, the brand is the whole company. Mm. Um, but you know, people become especially access- obsessed with contract loopholes when we give them cute names like Trapdoor or Black Hole or Neiman Two-Step. And J. Crew's uh, example, it was, uh, we called it a Trapdoor. But, um, and every article I read about it talked about creative lawyering. But at the end of the day, really, you're talking about using a couple baskets that are there on the face of the, of the uh, credit agreement or the indenture, as the case may be, and uh, combining them in order to do a transaction. So at, mm. the, at the end of the day, it's kind of simple stuff. And let's let's also just for the benefit of any listeners that might not be familiar, correct me if I'm wrong. J. Crew took its intellectual property, which, as you pointed out, is kind of the whole business. It's a fashion brand, um, or the the most valuable part of the business, and they removed it from the credit box um, that had issued its existing debt. So they took it away from the collateral package of existing lenders. They put it in an unrestricted subsidiary, and then then used those assets as collateral for new debt that I think primed existing lenders. So existing lenders lost their collateral and then they got primed by new debt that was secured by the collateral they had lost, right? Correct, correct. And the, okay. the, and the uh, important thing to remember that is once it's in an unrestricted sub, it's not bound by the debt restrictions within the agreement. So then it mm-hmm. can go out and issue as much debt as, as you want. And that's the reason, surely, that uh, they stuck it into an unrestricted sub versus a, a non-guarantor restricted sub, for example. Right. Okay. Cool. So that's yeah, that's really helpful context. Um, so moving on to the the kind of the new J Crew, whether it is or not, we we will see. Um, but earlier this week, we put out an article about a a kind of a subtle feature of some credit agreements, particularly in the private credit space, where some lenders and their lawyers are kind of worried that borrowers could pull this kind of move again, but in a in a slightly different way. Even though many credit agreements since J.Crew now include language that is specifically intended to stop borrowers from pulling that kind of move. So can you kind of explain a bit about this this new uh, quote unquote loophole that um, that seems to have been found? Sure. It, it does involve getting into the weeds a little bit, but let's, let's, let's delve a little bit. Um, first, we should talk about the market response to J.Crew, which was um, to come with what's called a J.Crew blocker. It's very narrow. 
uh, and in my opinion, it's kind of a tepid response. Basically, what it says is, uh, thou shalt not move intellectual property, material intellectual property, into an unrestricted sub. Doesn't say you can't transfer it to a third party. Doesn't say you can't transfer it to a non-guarantor restricted sub. It's just limited to an unrestricted subsidiary. Uh, you could argue that a better response or um, uh, would have been to say, all material uh, intellectual property must be collateral for my loan, or you cannot transfer it away from a non from a guarantor. That would have solved the problem. Instead, the J. Crew blockers that I've seen have been very narrow sort of specific to the actual J. Crew transaction itself and, uh, yeah. and not wholly responsive. So the new concept is uh, in the uh, securitization language that you see in any debt links covenant and any asset sale and any, any um, transactional affiliates covenant. Uh, uh, yeah. My guess is a lot of people gloss over the language. It's kind of dense and, and like this. Uh, the securitization permissions in any bond and loan will vary quite a bit. Some are quite restrictive mm -hmm. and narrow and, and and limited to, for example, receivables assets. And just to, to, to back up once again, um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the securitization basket within a credit agreement, it essentially allows a borrower to take some assets, for example, accounts receivable, money that hasn't been paid yet, and use them as collateral for a securitization, like an asset-backed security in order to raise new debt, correct? Correct. Um, okay. But again, the there's a lot of variation. Um, mm -hmm. uh, some is narrow. The, uh, the uh, article we put out recently quoted from a much broader uh, uh, set of definitions um, than people may be used to. Uh, that particular example of the article comes from, you can see that language in Birkenstock or Thais and Krupp mm -hmm. Elevator, if you want to find the actual deals, those are both public bonds that you'll find on IFN. But mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it includes, of course, accounts receivable, uh, but also it specifically includes intellectual property. Um, furthermore, there's no requirement that the transaction be a bona fide securitization transaction on market terms. It's really quite loose. All you need to do is transfer uh, the applicable assets, the called, quote, securitization assets, to a securitization subsidiary. The subsidiary could be a restricted sub, an unrestricted sub, a guarantor, mm -hmm. or a non-guarantor. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, now I haven't seen the loans uh, with this, uh, any, any public loans, I should say, with this specific language that I could cite back to you, but I'm relatively certain uh, what they will say is the moment an entity is a, quote, securitization subsidiary, it no longer is required to guarantee the loans, and therefore all that clutter would be released permissibly mm -hmm. okay so and, and the issue is that the assets that are allowed to be securitized under the credit agreement in these examples that's a much broader set of assets than most credit agreements stipulate right so it's not just accounts receivable it's a bunch of different stuff like you could potentially you could theoretically securitize intellectual property for example rather than just the typically securitized assets. Right, right. Um, now, this wouldn't be uh, the first um, deal to securitize intellectual property, but it may not be what people think of immediately when you think of a securitization transaction. But I, I guess I would, I would mm -hmm. talk about uh, uh, three things. Number one, yes, the securitization language is broad, 
uh, quite loose. However, it, well, the second thing is it's oftentimes unkept. Um, I, I suppose under the theory that the definitions themselves will be sufficient to uh, provide a, a market cap on it. Um, and the, mm -hmm. the third thing is that would just go back to what we were discussing before was, is that in a, in a, in a credit where the intellectual, intellectual property is the king or the brands are the king, maybe the J crew blocker is too weak. Maybe you should go back to basics and say, you know, must remain collateral. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The brands must remain collateral. So, right. So, so basically this language could allow borrowers to do a securitization with assets that lenders might not typically expect them to securitize um, in order to, to raise new cash. And that is, that's basically a kind of an unexpected use of this securitization basket, right? Well, that's the concept. Now, of course, every agreement is different. It would have to be reviewed from beginning to end to make sure that all the pieces work together. And, and uh, uh, I would imagine if this had been tried in J Crew, there still would have been a lawsuit, despite the the loose language, and uh, you know, uh, lender law, lender lawyers are just as clever as company lawyers, and so once lit litigators get involved, you never know what's going to happen. But that's the basic concept. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And so, in the piece we put out last week, we noted that we we haven't actually seen any specific examples of of borrowers actually doing this, and most of the um, most of the people we spoke to for the article who have been kind of lasering in on this issue are within the private credit universe as opposed to the broadly syndicated credit universe. But there was one name that came up when we were discussing this piece internally, which I think kind of tried something similar to this um, a few years ago. And I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here, but that was Norska Skug. Yeah, um, that was an interesting transaction, I thought. Um, uh, they tried to flip basically Holco, I think it was PIC uh, paper, into Opco paper that would have been secured by certain receivables using the uh, qualified securization language. Now that went to court, but the procedural context is important. That was a motion for preliminary injunction against the proposed exchange offer that was bought by the trustee on behalf of note holders. Now, the company actually won meaning the motion was denied, but part of that analysis in the context of a preliminary injunction is whether there's a likelihood of success on the merits, and that's what we care about. On that point, the company lost in this courtroom, uh, and, and the judge in that courtroom put a great deal of weight onto the difference between a, quote, financing versus a, quote, refinancing, um, and, uh, and found that the, in that particular deal, the definitions were only available for a financing. Because this was an exchange, uh, it would not be available for what was uh, really a refinancing. Now, not, now that, not everybody's going to agree with that, but the, the court, that's what the court said. And the court, uh, being the court, the court was right. So, so they kind of, um, they invalidated that transaction. The court invalidated that transaction kind of based on a technicality as opposed to shooting down the whole kind of concept of, of what Norska Skug was, was going for? Uh, I think that's fair. I, I think that anybody who's going to try this ought to be aware of Norski and be able to distinguish their case from Norski. I mean, it was a Southern District case. Come on now. Um, and, uh, mm. and, and just be prepared to, that, just prepared to fight, fight the same battle that Norski had to fight. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, that's an example of someone trying this in the past and not necessarily being successful. Um, but as you pointed out, you know, covenant lawyers are uh, 
very canny people um and they are paid a lot of money for finding ways to um deftly make arguments to to push things push things through basically um not nearly enough not nearly enough money i'm sure <laughs> i was reading the other day that lawyers are lawyers are making wall street lawyers are making significantly more than uh than bankers these days they're the is that true the new oh. high rollers of wall street yeah supposedly um but uh but yes yeah, so, so just thinking about how this works in practice or could work in practice would it be just as simple as, as doing a securitization because actually securitizations can be quite complex and if you are a company and your back is against the wall you know your earnings are struggling a little bit and you need to raise some new cash um to kind of bridge you to better times maybe a securitization like a regular asset-backed security doesn't really get you the speed of ex execution you need if you have a really urgent need for funding um and secondly the kind of lenders that might be willing to provide capital to you in that kind of situation might not want to lend you money in the form of a securitization they might just want to do a regular way term loan or a unitranche deal or something so is, is there any scope in this language to reappropriate it for something that basically isn't a securitization i think that probably is the you know the language that i was looking at in the, the deals that i cited uh is probably broad enough that the transaction need not be overly complex for example in a normal securitization there would be a requirement that the um that the uh securitization subsidiary be bankruptcy remote well there's right. no requirement there's no requirement in this particular indenture for that for that requirement to be met mm. um some language i think norsky even said that the the, the securitization had to be on quote market terms which would invite all the complexities that you you've just alluded to um but there's no requirement in this indenture that i was looking at for the security transaction to be on market terms. Now it's required in this indenture to be, I think it's economically fair and reasonable, but that doesn't mean it has to be on market terms. And there might not necessarily have to even be a disclosure document. Um, uh, I'll leave that to the lawyers to decide, but uh, you know, for the, it, it might make sense from the company's perspective to make it look as much like a bona fide security transaction as practicable, just in order to fit it within definitions. But mm -hmm. there are no real formalities uh, within the, the, mm -hmm. uh, the this this particularly loose language. Right, right, right. Yeah, it it does seem like this one in particular is quite um quite permissive. Uh, you can think of sort of several several ways it could be attacked. Um, but to to zoom out again, just just for one one minute, we we talked earlier about J Crew being the kind of prototypical example of this hypothetical collateral stripping that we're talking about. Um, albeit by a different mechanism, not the securitization basket. And I think J. Crew is probably one of the reasons that most of the sources we spoke to for this story were focused on the the kind of scary idea of intellectual property being the asset that a company might want to kind of unexpectedly strip out and put in a separate entity to raise cash. But then not every company has IP as valuable as J. Crew, which as we pointed out earlier, is a fashion brand. Basically, the IP is the business. So is there is there any other reason than the legacy of J. Crew to be so focused on intellectual property in this hypothetical situation? Or do you think you could pull the same kind of move with other kinds of valuable collateral? I mean, if, if you're going to use this, then 
if you really want bang for your buck, if you're going to attempt this maneuver, then you're probably going to want to do it with some kind of valuable collateral. I guess it, it, whether IP is valuable to you or not depends on what kind of company you are. No, I hear you. I, I think, I think uh, given the fact that the, tra the transaction we're, the hypothetical transaction we're contemplating does not need to be on market terms, at least under this indenture language, you have a ton of flexibility. And the answer mm -hmm. in this particular under this particular language is, does it meet the definition of quote, securitization asset? And I'm just gonna read it quickly to you and focus on the part mm -hmm. that I think is most important to answer your question. But in this language, in this document, the uh, securitization asset means any accounts receivable, mortgage receivables, loan receivables, royalty franchise fees, license fees, patents, and here it comes, or other revenue streams and other rights to payment. So whatever, whatever you can. So basically anything. Well, you tell me whatever, whatever you can. I'll let you be the clever one here. Whatever you can come up with um, uh, that fits within the words or other revenue stream and other rights to payment, uh, I, you could arguably, uh, you know, um, shove into this loophole. Right. Well, that's that's um, that's another wrinkle, isn't it? Because IP isn't always necessarily a, a kind of currently cash flowing asset. Right, it's it, it it's an asset, but it doesn't kind of reliably produce revenue streams in the same way that an auto loan or a mortgage loan or something does. You know, those are typically securitized assets. But I guess you could do some kind of alchemy where you take IP and you kind of license it or something like that, license it back to yourself so that you're uh, so that it is actually generating revenue, and then it becomes a revenue generating asset, and then you can securitize it. So I, I I just wonder I wonder about the potential complexity of pulling this kind of move. I mean, people do seem to be scared about it, but it seems like um, it's not entirely straightforward. Uh, well, I I it's not this wouldn't be the first. Uh, we're talking about secure as in a brand at the end of the day, right? So it, it has been done. Mm -hmm. It has been mm -hmm. done before. When you talk about um, securization of intellectual of intellectual property, and ever inevitably somebody always goes back to David Boy, right? Remember the Bowie bonds, right? So you know, there's mm -hmm. that, and I, I, th I think this has been done, and there was a big deal, I think, in the um, early OOs uh, involving Dunkin' Donuts, and I think it's been done for other other brands as well. Maybe Guess, uh, Bill Blast comes to mind. So I, it's not wouldn't be unprecedented. It's just got to, you know, for uh, indenture or loan purposes, it just has to fit within the definitions and the applicable carve-outs. Simple as that. So we're we talking about a, a kind of whole business securitization type thing, um, but but with but with IP, uh, something like that. I mean, listen, the moment you check, you know, in J Crew, you know, arguably the brand was a transfer of substantial all assets. So you know, you, you do have to be careful about mm. about something like that, um, um, uh, and, and taking all collateral away from lenders. I mean, the more you the more you do something like that, the the more the transaction stinks, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And. Finally, I guess the, the last question would be, um, we don't know whether this is going to happen or not. Like, clearly, people are worried about it um, and worried about it for a reason. And it seems like there is some room in the document for this kind of thing to happen. Um, but do you think, given that markets are in a very different place now to where they were back when these documents were written, um, do you think this is a, an example of kind of chickens coming home to roost from the, the sort of boom times of, of the markets um, when lenders were very willing to allow quite kind of quite loose covenants? And as, as you pointed out at the start of the podcast, um, maybe didn't uh, block 
J Crew as fully as as they could have. Um, you know, they could have they could have put more broader language in place to to kind of block these kind of moves. Do you, do you think? Do you think this is those decisions kind of coming back to to haunt the market a little bit? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, essentially, we've given you know the sponsors the pen, and uh, right. and they are who we thought they were. <laughs> um, you know, right. I go back to I think it's Dyson Krupp Elevator. I hope I pronounced that one right. That's that's one of the deals that had this particular language in it. I just just out of curiosity, I went back and looked at our bond report on that particular indenture, and the, the bond report said. This is from Ninefin said, no, we don't usually use these superlatives at Ninefin, but this is the worst deal we've ever seen. So this this particular <laughs> language might have been the least of anybody's worries when, when you're talking about pushback on covenant terms. So there was other stuff in there that was so obviously off market that, that, that things did get mm. pushed back. But this language, I mm. suppose, was uh, at the bottom of anybody's wish list. Um, but yeah, but I, I, I guess you could say the chickens are coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I get in just to offer some balance, I suppose. Um, you know, a, a lot of our buy side sources will will talk about how uh, you know sponsors sponsors are going to sponsor, and they'll they'll do these these awful things to us lenders. But at the end of the day, I mean, if the if the leeway is there within the document to to do something like this, then arguably as a sponsor, you actually have a kind of fiduciary obligation to your LPs to take advantage of it. Right. Uh, I love it. You have a fiduciary responsibility to screw over your bondholders. I love it. Um, <laughs> that's that's an interesting take. Uh, well, I, I think when you have uh, when you have baskets in, in your document, now, let's go back to let's go back to a J Crew. You have baskets in your document that permit you to do a transaction. You shouldn't be surprised when the transaction actually happens. Right. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the, the the age old argument of well, you should have read the document. We should probably wrap it up there. Um, but thank you, James, once again. And uh, I guess we'll just we'll just have to keep an eye out for this one and, and see if it actually does get used at some point. Yeah, because then there'll be a new, you know, such and such blocker, and we'll have to start reading that language again. A new J Crew blocker. Yes. A new new J Crew blocker. New, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right. <laughs> cool. Well. Um, yeah. Uh, until next time. Thanks again. Thank you. All right, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to tune in next Thursday to hear the latest update from our colleagues in London. We'll be back the week after that. So until then, as always, take care.